Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Back in February, I came across a reference to a legal case in Virginia involving a person who was neither male nor female. It was absolutely fascinating, but I didn't have the expertise to do the story justice. So, I reached out to friend of the show, B.T. Newberg, host of Dead Ideas and the History of Sex, to see if he'd be up for bringing this story to our ears. He said sure, and earlier this week he sent through the episode. What follows is an incredible deep dive into not just the case of Thomasine Hall, but the religious and medical depictions of intersex people throughout history. It's blown me away, and I think you'll find this guest episode fascinating. If you enjoy it, go check out The History of Sex on all good podcasting apps. Hi there. My name is Samuel Hume of the podcast Pax Britannica. Wait, no, uh, I seem to be confused almost as confused as the British colonists of Virginia in 1629, who were confronted with the person who claimed to be both Thomas and Thomasine Hall. I'm B.T. Newberg of the podcast The History of Sex, and Sam asked me to do a special guest episode on this befuddling incident in British colonial history. Enjoy. And now, thought Hall, spotting pitchforks and torches flickering in the distance, That can't be good. Being hauled into the Virginia Colonial Court on the 25th of March, 1629, Hall was charged with fornication with a maidservant, that is to say, sex outside marriage, but soon testimony came to light that complicated the matter. Hall faced the presiding authority, Captain Bass, who implored, You are Thomas Hall, are you not? I am, Hall answered. The captain eyed the person up and down, who was dressed in the typical long coat, waistcoat, and knee-length breeches of any other man in the British colonies. The captain scowled. We have a report here from one Nicholas who claims to have seen you at Atkins Arbor in the dress of a woman. Hall remained silent, caught in a bind. If a man, Hall faced the charge of fornication with the maidservant, but if a woman... Then Hall would have lied with a fellow woman, and so the charge would have to be sodomy, for the laws of the colony of Virginia outlawed same-sex coupling between either sex. Well, demanded the captain impatiently, if you are indeed Thomas Hall, then why do you go about in woman's apparel? Hall considered for a moment. Man or woman, fornication or sodomy, either way, spelled doom. And so, cocking a cheeky smile, now... Here I am going to quote directly from the actual minutes of the Council and General Court of Colonial Virginia, which states, The said hall answered in the hearing of this depot, I go in women's apparel to get a bit for my cat. This produced an uproar from the crowd. People whispered to each other, Did he just say to get a bit for his cat? He doesn't mean that he has a woman's, you know, down there, but he's a man. How could he have a, you know, a a cat? And now the veins in the captain's forehead bulged as he boomed, Are you a man or a woman? In the minutes of the council is recorded that Hall answered, Both man and woman. 
The captain stumbled backward into his chair as the courtroom erupted with gasps. For yes, he was Thomas Hall, but he was also Thomasine Hall. And for those in the courtroom that day, well, it might as well have been the end of days. When I went to renew my Minnesota driver's license last month, I was asked for my sex. I could have marked M for male, F for female, or X. I had never seen that before. That's new. It feels modern to be allowed a choice beyond the binary. I mean, really modern, as in this generation modern. And yet, as you can see from our introductory story, this country has been wrestling with this same question for more than 400 years. You see, this hall was an intersex person, and the colonists did not know what to make of this. Hall had presented as both male and female at various times, flipping back and forth willy-nilly, and this was apparently a source of dire consternation for some colonists. It's causing all kinds of chaos, they said. And legal courts went to absurd lengths to determine once and for all what to put on Hall's driver's license. I wonder what the DMV would say if I switched the sex on my driver's license every time I renewed. Now, it would be a little more than a prank for me, but for many people today, about 16,000 Americans by one estimate, it is a real question, a problem of life-altering proportion, just as it was for Hall in the days of the colonies. We're going to take a deep look at perceptions of intersex in early colonial America and the long history behind those perceptions. That's what we're talking about today. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex, or Pax Britannica. colonists of 1629 Virginia were confused, really confused. But let's start by making sure that we are not. So what is intersex exactly? Intersex refers to individuals who have sex characteristics that vary from typical binary notions of male and female. It's typically focused on variation of anatomy, which makes it different from transgender, which is typically more focused on identification varying from the gender assigned at birth, regardless of how anatomy may present. But bear in mind that although intersex is distinct from transgender and modern conceptions, other eras and cultures often thought in different categories and might divide up the pie differently, as we shall see today. Intersex questions have throughout history largely focused on ambiguities in the external appearance of the genitalia, but modern medicine has actually revealed that uncertainty can also be internal or even chromosomal. For example, if an otherwise male-presenting person is found to have ovarian tissue or a sex chromosome other than XY, well, is that person male or female? And who makes that call? Today, we're moving toward personal choice as the ultimate decision-maker in that situation, but that was rarely the case throughout history. 
As we shall see, different cultures at different times have approached the question in various ways, never really coming to a conclusion despite the surprisingly large number of people with intersex characteristics. It's difficult to come up with a good estimate of the prevalence of intersex since it is complicated by a vast number of different contributing factors, but one estimate puts it at about one out of every 2,000 people, which would make the number of intersex people in the U.S. today around 16,000. Now, in Hall's day, of course, the population of the colonies was far lower, and also it was virtually impossible to identify intersex people who had hidden characteristics. You could only tell if they presented ambiguity externally. So in 1629, when Hall's case was brought to trial, Hall would have been a unique individual indeed. There were only about 500 people in the British colonies at that time, split between Plymouth and Virginia. And even if we still go with the 1 in 2000 statistic, that means Hall was most likely the only person in the colonies at the time with such characteristics. They would have been unique. And by the way, pronouns for intersex people are today a matter of personal choice, but since we can't ask Hall's perspective, I'm going to use they, them in this episode. Okay, so what was going through the minds of the colonists who were presented with the case of this Thomas-slash-Thomasine Hall? How could they determine the sex of this person and thus their fate? Because although they might not have had anyone else like them among their number, they did nevertheless have myriad historical influences available to them that they could draw on in deciding Hall's case. Their native neighbors, for one, had long-standing traditions. For example, the Powhatan tribes in the Chesapeake Bay area around Jamestown were speakers of the Algonquian language family, and there are reports of binary-busting individuals among other Algonquian speakers. The Ojibwe, for example, spoke of the Ikwekazo, or one who endeavors to be like a woman, and the ininikazo, or one who endeavors to be like a man. Now, Ojibwe academic Anton Troyer explains, Ikwekazo and ininikazo could take spouses of their own sex. Both were considered to be strong spiritually, and they were always honored, especially during ceremonies. The role of the Ikwekazo and the ininikazo in Ojibwe society was believed to be sacred, often because they assumed their roles based on spiritual dreams or visions. So, in other words, they lived and dressed according to a sex dictated by visions. Now, is this a matter of personal choice? Well, in one sense, no. The sacred source of the vision is what chooses, not the individual. But on the other hand, a vision is experienced by the individual alone who could just as easily conceal it as share it. So I can only conclude that the determination of sex was, in this sense at least, a personal choice. These people were effectively able to choose their own sex. And far from being scorned for it, they were accorded a place of honor in society. French explorers from the late 1600s reported, They are present at the solemn dances in honor of the calumet, he means the peace pipe, and they are summoned to the councils and nothing can be decided without their advice. 
Finally, through their profession of leading an extraordinary life, they pass for Manitous, that is to say, for spirits or persons of consequence. High honor was accorded to them. Now, whether such individuals included intersex people is not entirely clear. As mentioned earlier, it does become problematic when you try to impose modern categories onto other eras and cultures. And if Hall had taken their case to the Powhatan tribes around Jamestown instead of the colonial courts, most likely, I suspect, the reaction would have been quite different. Drawing on lore from their Ojibwe cousins, or perhaps even on their own local lore, I suspect the Powhatan would not have seen Hall's situation as problematic in the least. On the contrary, it may have even elevated Hall in their eyes. As it happened, however, Hall did not go before the Powhatan, but before the colonial courts, and I could find no evidence whatsoever that they cared one whit for their native neighbors' opinions on this matter. Quite the pity. What they did care about were the centuries upon centuries of European traditions that they brought with them, going all the way back to the ancient world. So then, what if Hall's case had been presented in, say, ancient Greece? How would they have determined Hall's sex? Well, most likely the ancient Greeks would have seen Hall as no more problematic than the Powhatan tribes, but for very different reasons. See, the ancient Greeks conceived of sex as a continuum with male on one end and female on the other and a whole wide middle ground in between. It was a highly patriarchal hierarchy to be sure, with males representing perfection at the top and everyone else kind of sliding down the pole to varying degrees of imperfection. But the point is that you could find yourself anywhere on that pole, and so there was no need to decide male or female for Hall. They were just somewhere in between, and that answer was good enough for the Greeks. It wouldn't have been great for Hall, they would have been seen as less than typical males, that's for sure, but the question of sex determination would not have caused a system-wide meltdown as it did for the Virginia colonists. Far from a meltdown, in fact, a Greek would have looked at Hall and said, Oh, wow, yeah, I've never seen this before, but I get it. It's just like our myth, you know, the one about Hermaphroditos. And according to this myth, Hermaphroditos, the child of the god Hermes and the goddess Aphrodite, bore the features of both sexes in equal measure with fully functioning equipment from both. And this is, in fact, the derivation of our term hermaphrodite. Now, in modern times, this is no longer the preferred term, basically because the perception of a hermaphrodite having fully functioning equipment of both sexes, as could be found in, say, species like earthworms, but never apparently in Homo sapiens, actually kind of led 19th century authorities to claim intersex people didn't truly exist, to a kind of intersex erasure. So consequently, we no longer use the term hermaphrodite. But the ancient Greeks did, and seeing such individuals on the continuum of sex and reflected in myth to boot, they probably would not have seen Hall as much of a problem. That's not to say Hall's life would have been easy in the ancient world, of course, far from the place of honor that they might have enjoyed among the Ojibwe. Hall might have been made, I don't know, a spectacle perhaps, a wonder to behold. And this may have been true in ancient Greece, and it was almost certainly true for the Romans, because we have people who said it was. The Roman writer Pliny reports that although his people once saw such individuals as signs from the gods, 
they were now little more than curiosities. He writes, Persons are also born of both sexes combined, what we call hermaphrodites, formerly called androgyni and considered as portents, but now as entertainments. In other words, intersex people had become sideshows. And Pliny includes this note among a list of curious births, which also included a mother who gave birth to 30 children, far surpassing the octomom, one who gave birth to an elephant, another to a snake, another to a hippo centaur, and many other such births. And Pliny even uses the word monstrous to describe them, though it's important to note that in the ancient context, this doesn't necessarily imply evil per se, just perhaps fearful, but more just exceedingly rare and unusual. In other words, Pliny is saying that his fellow Romans saw intersex people as essentially circus sideshow wonders, basically the bearded ladies of his day. Now, there were, of course, those who rose above the circus. The second century CE sophist Favorinos of Arles was said to be born both man and woman and referred to himself as a eunuch. Now, eunuchs were usually castrated males, but the Romans also recognized a special category that they called natural eunuchs, who were born without the ability to reproduce. Now, this is not exactly a perfect fit with intersex, since many intersex people are perfectly able to procreate, but it seems that the sexual in-betweenness of intersex individuals was, for Favorinos and his fellow Romans, enough to draw a connection. And as time went on, intersex people were probably lumped in more and more with eunuchs. Now, could intersex people freely choose the label eunuch as their identifier? Uh, it's hard to say. Favorina seems to have done so here, but no doubt under a great deal of social pressure, so it's difficult to say. In any case, for the Romans, like the Greeks, the question of male or female was basically a non-starter. They would have chosen none of the above because they had categories available to them into which someone like Hall was perceived to fit better than male or female. They had continuums or they had eunuchs. They weren't locked in to a binary at this time. But as we pass into the Christian era, the situation becomes a little more complicated. See, the book of Genesis in the Bible appears to portray God creating man and woman and just these two, with no other possibilities in between. So where does that leave intersex people? And this question was answered in different ways by different theologians. Wrestling with this, some early Christian theologians, picking up on even earlier Jewish ideas, argued that Adam was actually originally androgynous, and the split into male and female was actually part of the fall. And along these lines, some actually considered intersex to be a spiritually privileged state. As historian Leah Devoon writes, For church fathers such as Origen of Alexandria, Gregory of Nyssa, and John Damascene, among others, the most elevated state of humanity was the absence of binary sex. Now, had Christianity carried on in this direction, it's conceivable that intersex people might actually have achieved an honored status akin to that among the Ojibwe. And actually, in fact, 
in some parts of the Christian world, they almost kinda sorta did. In the Eastern Roman Empire, you see, which developed into the Byzantine Empire, eunuchs in the imperial court rose to such extremely high status that by the end, they were being portrayed as akin to almost angels on earth. And if you're interested in this, you can actually check out our court eunuch series on my other show, Dead Ideas. But for our purposes here, the point is that intersex people imperfectly lumped in with eunuchs may have actually achieved high honor in the East. However, this was not the only view within Christianity. Augustine, for example, took issue with the suggestion that Adam might have been androgynous. And in stark contrast, he affirmed that, no, no, Adam and Eve were made male and female from the very start, and there's nothing fallen about sexual difference per se, only the lust that so often accompanies copulation. And this had great consequences for intersex people in the West. In Augustine's version, they were exiled from Eden more surely even than Adam and Eve, for they were now nowhere in the story at all. And in the end, to the regret of intersex people, it was Augustine's view that prevailed. Now, by the High Middle Ages, the court eunuch was being seen by most Europeans as a bizarre and backwards quirk of the Byzantines, whereas the Western Roman version of Christianity, Augustine's version, achieved ever greater dominance. And with that dominance spread the notion that intersex people had no place in the divine order. That's how it came to be that Europeans, who had once had no problem at all conceiving of intersex people, came first to see them as circus sideshows, and then theological problems, and finally, as mind-befuddling paradoxes of logic. To the medieval Christian mind, a male who was also female was as impossible to conceive as up being also down or black being also white. It could not exist within their conceptual categories. The binary had become binding. So now, when presented with ambiguous anatomy, a determination of male or female had to be made. Nothing else was acceptable. And usually, it was a matter of deciding which of the two sexes predominated. If a person presented more like a male, then they were male. If they presented more like female, they were female. Done deal, case closed, time for lunch. And rarely in this process was personal choice even a factor. Now later, as the Renaissance saw a revival of earlier ancient traditions, this mindset crystallized even further. Renaissance readers encountered ancient descriptions of intersex people, such as the highly respected Greek physician Galen, who described hermaphrodites, or Pliny, who we heard from earlier, who described hermaphrodites as mere entertainments to his people. And upon reading these accounts, Renaissance Europeans could not help but read into them their own ideas. And thus, Galen's hermaphrodite and Pliny's sideshow monsters, quote-unquote, became devilish abominations. In other words, a person who could not be determined to be male or female was no person at all. Thus, when we finally arrive in the colonies of the 1600s, 
the primary understanding of someone like Hall was as a monster. And now it really did imply evil. A 17th century book of midwifery called Aristotle's Masterpiece, not really written by Aristotle, that was just a pseudonym. In this book, there is contained an apt illustration of this mindset. This book presents a being that has, quote, the privities of male and female and the rest of the body like a man, as you may see by this figure. And there was an illustration. Now, this certainly sounds like the common trope of the hermaphrodite that we've already heard, but... A glance at the accompanying illustration shows just how low perceptions had fallen. The creature depicted has a horn on its head, wings on its back, and stands upon a single taloned foot. This English book, which historian Elizabeth Reese calls the most popular and often reprinted medical manual in the colonies and the definitive word on all matters relating to reproduction and genital anatomy. Now, admittedly, Aristotle's masterpiece was not actually published until about 50 years after Hall's trial, but this thing was a compendium of common wisdom that had been kicking around for quite some time, so I think it's reasonable for us to assume that it was representative of the colonial mindset even in Hall's day 50 years earlier. Thus, it is clear that perceptions of intersex had by this point passed beyond just the bearded lady fascination and well into the realm of the truly monstrous. So, when Hall went before the courts to receive their verdict, it was this kind of stuff that was in the minds of those judging them. Yikes, <laughs> that doesn't bode well. Things were not looking good for Hall. So, what was it like, then, when Hall walked into that courthouse? Did people see Hall with horns, wings, and talons? Or, what's almost worse, did Hall fear that they did and have that anxiety eating away from the inside? We're going to find out and get the rest of Hall's story in just a moment. But first, we'll take a short break, and we'll be back after this. And now, The History of Sex presents this. Captain's Log, star date 1629.25, aboard the starship Enterprise. We have come upon a world strangely resembling that of Earth, circa 17th century America. Spock and I are beaming down to investigate. Welcome, travelers, to our colony. Be it now zero or one. I'm sorry, come again? Zero or one, which dost thou be? I am zero, and look, yonder is my daughter. She is one. Male and female, Captain. Yes, Spock, I got that. Come, child! Sir, your daughter is beautiful. Ah, but I am not his daughter, am I, father? Oh, of course thou art, dear. No, I am not. I am not just one. I'm confused. Shh, quiet, my child. Binarius will hear thee. Binarius will punish thee. No! 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 What happened? Where has she gone? She has been taken. Binarius, she will be determined. Then you must take us to see this Binarius. 
I am Binarius. What have you done with her? She will be determined. All sources of confusion must be eliminated. All are either zero or one. Why must all be either zero or one? To avoid confusion. Ah, but sex determination is itself a confusing thing. I put it to you that to deny this is to create further confusion. I am Binarius. Chromosomal variation, hidden ovarian tissue, undescended testicles. I am Binarius. By attempting to eliminate confusion, you have become a source of confusion. By your own logic, you must be eliminated. I am Binarius. 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 What didst thou do, travelers? I am confused. You are free now. And my daughter? I am here, father, but I am not thy daughter or your son. I am just thine. Time to go, Spock. Our work here is done. It may be time to review the crew uniforms when we return, Captain. Some question why they must wear miniskirts while others wear pants. Perhaps you're right. It's decided, then. You'll look good, Spock. In a miniskirt, Captain. <laughs> all right, we're back. So with all that we just learned about the perception of intersex in the American colonies, things are not looking good for Thomas slash Thomasine Hall. So how did that case get resolved in the end? Did they decide man or woman, fornication or sodomy? Let's check back in. Captain Bass rubbed his tortured brow. So let me see if I understand correctly, he said. You were born in England in Newcastle-upon-Tyne? Yes, sir, said Hall. And there you were christened by the name Thomasine and raised as a girl until the age of twelve. Yes, sir. But truth be told, it was never clear from the start. I see. And at the age of twelve, you were sent to live with your aunt in London, and there lived ten more years as a girl until your brother joined the army, at which time you cut your hair and put on the apparel of a man to become a soldier as well. Yes, sir. And after returning from this service, you voyaged across the Atlantic to Plymouth Colony, and there again changed your apparel back to that of a woman to make bold lace and do needlework. Whereupon, at last you made a final voyage, coming here to Virginia Colony, and upon arriving changed once again into the habit of a man to become a servant. Yes, sir. And yet you did not remain so, for as you have confessed, you sometimes put on women's wear, as you so eloquently state, to get a bit for your cat. At that point, the court had had quite enough, and one man in the audience by the name of Roger Rhodes burst forward in outrage, demanding, and here I quote again the actual minutes of the council, how thou hast been reported to be a woman, and now thou art proved to be a man, I will see what thou carriest. Whereupon the said Rhodes laid hands upon the said hall, and they threw the said hall on his back, and pulled out his members, whereby it appeared that he was a perfect man. However, Hall protested, 
Hall replied he was both, only he had not the use of the man's part, which was a piece of flesh growing at the belly as big as the top of his little finger an inch long. Hall was then asked if that was all that he had, to which Hall answered, I have a piece of an ole. A piece of a hole. In other words, he was both man and woman. Yes, Hall had a penis, but it was a small and useless appendage, whereas the part Hall claimed to enjoy was the piece of a hole, that is, the woman's part, apparently dressing in women's clothing when feeling randy. Now, for some reason which I cannot fathom, the minutes do not record any attempt to locate this hole on Hall's body. So was this a reference to his anus, perhaps? Well, if that were true, then the case would have been open and shut, and we wouldn't be talking about this right now. So I don't think that can be. It must have been a woman's hole, and I'm not sure if mention of a vagina was just omitted from the record for modesty's sake, or what. But they must have looked for one, because Hall was inspected several more times after this, with some even going so far as to break into Hall's house to peep while they were asleep, and each time the inspectors made a determination of male, but were apparently so hesitant about the decision that they had to keep checking and rechecking and rechecking. Finally, a verdict had to be pronounced. The court was in a bind. Reese sums up the situation. Had the court been able to decide which of Hall's sexual characteristics were predominant, it might have required him or her to assume and maintain this preferred sex. Such a solution would have been consistent with scripture-based laws as interpreted by Talmudic commentaries and consonant with early modern European customs. However, this was not to be. Instead, the court handed down a surprise verdict. It was thereupon at this court ordered that it shall be published in the plantation where the said hall liveth, that he is a man and a woman. Wait, what? They decided in favor of Hall? The court officially ruled that Hall was telling the truth. They took them at their word, that they were neither male nor female, but both. <laughs> I did not see that coming. So, wait, so what about the charges of fornication and sodomy, then? Well, apparently, without a definite determination of male or female, neither charge could be pressed, and so Hall could not be found guilty. Huh. <laughs> so a happy ending, then. Well, actually, not quite. You see, the court did add one further tiny stipulation. It ruled that it should further be published in the plantation, that all the inhabitants there may take notice thereof, and that he shall go clothed in man's apparel, only his head to be attired in a coif and cross cloth with an apron before him. What? Oh, so, in other words, it appears Hall must now, henceforth, mix men's and women's apparel, wearing items of both at the same time. And while this unusual ruling might seem to pay lip service to Hall's wishes, 
In fact, it did anything but. Reese sums it up. This was not a tolerant and understanding ruling permitting Hall to switch between male and female roles as circumstances allowed and opportunities afforded. It prevented any sexual autonomy and ability to blend in with the populace. Hall would have to live the rest of his or her days as a public freak and laughingstock, an ambiguously gendered being at once male and female. So this, apparently, was the court's way of enforcing a sentence anyway. See, they could not convict Hall of either fornication or sodomy, but in order to prevent Hall from seducing, quote-unquote, anyone of either sex ever again, Hall would have to wear the apparel of both sexes. And this was effectively the same as being forced to wear a scarlet letter. It was a sign visible to all that Hall was no normal person. The court made Hall into the monster that they had in their minds. Hall would forevermore be the half-human centaur creature of their perceptions. Never again could Hall enjoy any sense of normalcy, but would always and forevermore be an outsider, an other, a monster. After this, Hall disappears from the historical record, and we have no knowledge of their ultimate fate. What we do know is how the fate of intersex people generally played out through the rest of history up to the present. In the 18th century, it was argued that there was no such thing as a true hermaphrodite, quote-unquote. That is to say, a person with perfect sets of both genitalia, and who could reproduce either way, like earthworms. James Parsons was a proponent of this, who wrote in a 1741 treatise that what appeared to be a penis in some, perhaps even in Hall, was in fact just an enlarged clitoris. Now, as you may recall, as we've seen in one of our previous episodes, Did Da Vinci Omit the Clit?, the clitoris had recently been rediscovered in Europe and was much on the minds of physicians like Parsons. And actually, Parsons at least believed he was trying to help. See, by denying the existence of true hermaphrodites, he thought he was helping intersex people by saving them from the stigma of being called hermaphrodites. And he even actually went so far as to recommend personal choice in deciding the sex of such people. However, this part of his treatise was little heeded, and they only paid attention to the other part. And in the 19th century, this had a great influence. As doctors professionalized and assumed greater authority, they began taking the liberty of assigning sex. If no true hermaphrodites existed, as Parsons claimed, well then someone had to decide, and who was more qualified than a doctor? So they assigned sex, but not necessarily in accordance with the patient's preference. On the contrary, their motive was to support the institution of marriage. So... They assigned sex in whatever way produced normative heterosexual unions. So if a person was attracted to women, they would be assigned male and vice versa, even if the person's own preference and previous gender performance said otherwise. And in some cases, the decision would even be made final by surgery. 
Now, in the 20th century, this continued, but a case came to light of a botched circumcision where a child born clearly male suffered a little whoopsie-doodle and was thereafter raised female. And this led psychologists of the time to believe that maybe anyone could be raised as either sex so long as it was assigned before the age of 18. So after that, doctors began skewing female in their assignments for intersex infants. Why? Because it was much easier to surgically make the genitalia female than male, and if anybody could be raised as anything, you might as well make them female. Just raise them as girls and it'll be fine, they told parents. They'll never know. However, they did know. As such children began reaching puberty, a very large proportion of them began to feel that something was very wrong. It seems that sex is far more innate than these 20th century doctors had thought. Today, the generally adopted strategy for intersex children is a wait-and-see policy, basically placing trust that puberty will shed more light on a situation. And then, you know, children may grow up and lean male or lean female or perhaps even adopt an identity somewhere in between. Now, it's not necessarily the case that a person has full personal choice in all walks of life, for although, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, Minnesota now allows people to choose X for sex on their driver's license, that's by no means common. Minnesota is only one of 16 U.S. states that allows such a choice. And meanwhile, the federal census, which means national census for our international listeners, that I filled out last week still just has the same old tired M or F, no third option. And only about 11 countries in the world today offer some kind of non-binary or third gender category as a voluntary legal option. Have we made progress? Yes. Do we have a long way still to go? Yes, we do. Well, that's it for today, folks. I hope you learned something. I certainly did. If you want to check out Hall's case for yourself, you can find the full text of the minutes online. I'll put a link to it in the show notes on our website, www.historyofsexpod.com. The sequence of events in the minutes is recorded in a really odd and confusing way, so I've actually taken a few poetic liberties in rearranging the statements so that they make sense. But otherwise, I have endeavored to remain as faithful as I can to the original story as it was recorded in that courtroom. All right, folks, I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. Pax Britannica! <laughs> <laughs>